Hi everyone, welcome to Baby Steps Nutrition, a podcast that focuses on nutrition, health, and wellness for families of children of all ages and stages. I'm your host, Argavon Neil Forouge, a pediatric dietitian and mom of two young children. My goal is to bring you impactful information that you can apply every day in a simplified, practical form to make life easier. Now let's get into today's conversation. Dr. Michelle DeMessi is an author and activist for the rights of refugees and asylum seekers. She has worked in Afghanistan and the Middle East to deliver services to women, children, and ethnic minorities in both the private and not-for-profit sectors. Dr. DeMessi has held positions on the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees Roundtable Discussions and research adjunct roles at both Curtin University's Center for Human Rights Education and at the Swinburne Institute for Social Research. She completed a PhD at Swinburne University in the area of asylum seeker policy. Her words, the journey chose me. A warmest welcome to you, Dr. DeMessi. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm I'm really excited about this conversation today. Uh, Me more, I have to say. And as you know, as an Iranian-born woman, I understand very well the unique experiences of immigrants and refugees. And I have such a deep compassion towards the challenges that so many people face. And the work that you're doing is absolutely profound. And I'm so grateful that we're connected. So thank you once again. My pleasure. Um, I want to first ask you, and I'm sure you get asked this all the time, what initially inspired you to become an advocate for the rights of refugees? Yeah, thanks, Aragavan. Um, that's uh, an interesting question in how that came about, but it, it, at the same time, it's quite straightforward. It, it really chose me. <laughs> Sometimes I feel when we are aligned to what we want to be doing um, in terms of our own soul path, you know, sometimes the path just unfolds before us. So for me, that story began on Christmas Island, a small island um, owned by Australia, Australian sovereignty, uh, very close to Indonesia, where many asylum seekers have uh, made that perilous journey from the Middle East, Central Asia, places such as Afghanistan, and uh, arrived on small little boats um, that have departed from Indonesia to Christmas Island. And I happened to be on Christmas Island some years ago um, when these boats started arriving. Um, At that time, I was actually there to look at my PhD thesis. My doctorate was concerned with uh, asylum seeker arrivals back in the early 2000s. But at this stage, it was 2008 and Australia had had a change in, in government refugee policy and what had happened was that uh, that the uh, that boats started to arrive again in 2008. So I was on the island at that time and my research no longer was just about what had happened in the past but it was about what I was witnessing at that time and, and bearing witness to the challenges of asylum seekers. Yeah, that's what I call serendipity. It's <laughs> yeah, like the right place at the right time or it was meant to be as you said. Yeah, it really was. And at that time, um, the Australian government had had a change of policy. They were arguing that Australia no longer uh, detains uh, children 
And what had, uh, what had happened was, um, yes, they were not being incarcerated in, uh, you, you know, high security immigration facilities, but they were being held still um, under security guard management. Um, they couldn't leave these detention centres. And I published an article that was arguing um, that while we had more humane detention policies in Australia, children were still being locked up. And because I was witnessing this firsthand on the island, there was a playground um, that was publicly there for kids to use, for the Christmas Island children to play on. And the asylum seeker kids had to look at that playground um, from the proximity of the detention centre and were not could not just freely go there. So when I published that, um, the Australian Immigration Department actually then um, allowed me to come meet with some asylum seekers and I was able to see the conditions of the camp and I basically said to to a group of uh, mainly Afghan asylum seekers, is there anything I can do for you? And they asked me... um, They said, well, we'd we'd love to learn about Australia. And so from that, I uh, promised them that I would come every week and uh, teach them about Australia, which they said was something that gave them so much hope. And from that, um, over time, you know, more and more asylum seekers came and I felt the need to set up an NGO to, to help asylum seekers. There were not many refugee advocates on this tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean. And I really wanted to marry up the ways in which, um, you know, mainland Australians could be in contact with people so that, that they weren't, we say, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and to some extent, out of rights. Mm-hmm. And everything you just said highlights this power of storytelling. Like when you look at someone directly in the eyes, and I always say this to my kids and everyone I meet, with 8 billion people in the world, everyone has a story. But sometimes when we choose to look at people as the other, and we label them and we assume certain things about them. Or in the case of a lot of these refugees, there have been so many heartbreaking assumptions about who they are and their motives. And it's absolutely like you just painted, like these are real people that are escaping some of the worst circumstances. And no one would choose to leave if they didn't have, you know, if their hope and life and there was, you know, everything was bleak in their future. Absolutely. And I'm sure as as someone who has Iranian Persian roots, not dissimilar to people in the region, such as those from Afghanistan, you, you know, people have very, very rich culture, their culture, their music, their poetry, their food, you know, it's very, very rich. No one wants to leave their homelands. They're very proud of, of, of this culture. But unfortunately, people find themselves in this situation where they have to lay down roots in a new country and resettle and integrate. And, for me, that was okay. Well, you know, how can we also help provide people with the the best welcome here so that, you know, they can begin the new chapter in their lives? Yeah, absolutely. And this whole storytelling is what inspired you to write your book, Hope, Solidarity and Death at the Australian Border. Can you please talk about that and just the thought process behind that and and aha moments, light bulb moments that stemmed as a result of writing the book and then responses to the book. Yeah, I would love to. So just to, for a bit of backstory, the book itself was an adaptation of my PhD thesis. Um, and then I always knew that I would want to uh, convert it into a book more for mainstream um, audiences, for anyone that was really interested in, in refugee issues. And to be honest, what happened with that um, was 
when I put in a few different proposals to different publishers at that time, um, those were rejected. And I kind of, you know, to, to be really transparent, I just sort of did it at that time as like a ticker box exercise, you know, okay, well, that should be the next step. You know, my PhD's, uh, you know, has been completed. Now I should make this into a book. And, you know, with those few rejections, I was like, okay. And then I took some time back. I took a step back and it was actually during the pandemic. And I spent two or three days just reading the thesis again, the manuscript. And I said to myself, you know, what's my intention behind this? What is actually driving me to want to publish this and why is it important? And when I took that time to actually think about what the essence behind this was, um, of course, I got a contract <laughs> straight away. And, you know, that just sort of landed into my lap and very, very seamlessly. And I think because I said to myself, well, this is a really important story to share. No one has actually documented what has happened on Christmas Island to the extent I have. No one has covered boat uh, arrivals. And that's been taking place since 1992. And so no one has actually documented to this this level there's major gaps here in um what has been shared in the public domain and so my intention was very clear I felt like this is a story that needs to be told it tells a lot more than just about asylum seeker policy um it speaks to a bigger picture and that bigger picture is about how do we respond to you know quote the other and what happens um when people are able to engage with asylum seekers and refugees how how does that create you know an environment for compassion and kindness and welcome and what also happens when they're turned away and people become really hostile. So I think that speaks to something much bigger, which is really important even more to this day when we're looking at some of the largest refugee um, numbers ever since World War II. Yes. And with all of the people that you've encountered, Dr. DeMassi, what are the common challenges that they're faced with? Yeah, yeah, I would say the main thread for most people is uncertainty and feeling like they're in limbo, um, not knowing what is going to happen next. And I think that happened, um, not I think, I know this happened with people that were held in immigration detention. There was no clear, uh, you know, information as to how long their case would take to be processed. And I'm still seeing this, you know, in other current situations as well. For example, um, people that have left, say, Afghanistan and are in places like Islamabad and Tehran and they're waiting for their claims to be processed by generally other European Western um, countries. And it's the not knowing it's the not knowing and the uncertainty that's really destabilizing for people. And I think, you know, we can apply that to everyday situations as well for, for many of us. You know, when we don't know what's happening, we become really anxious. But if it's something that, uh, you know, that ha it has taught me as well is when people can let go and, you know, we often talk about, you know, and sort of personal growth, the art of like surrendering and actually just focus on the day-to-day, -day, think about the future remain hopeful, even if that is really, really difficult, um, people seem to manage their way through that situation a lot better. Mm -hmm. You share the story of one particular gentleman who was on a boat and mm. has managed to lead a successful life and overcome so many of his challenges. 
Do you know who I'm speaking of? Yeah, yes. yeah. So I think you're talking about one of the young asylum seekers, one unaccompanied minor. Um, yes, that young man. And, and we've remained really, really good friends over the years, actually. And he arrived on Christmas Island as a unaccompanied minor. Um, and at that time, you know, it was really uncertain what was going to happen to him in the future. But, uh, you know, recently I received a, a text from him um, explaining to me that he had completed his um, law degree now and had been admitted to practice law and in, in Australia. And I think that's that's remarkable. You know, that's like the telling of someone's journey that came as a, as a young person and has, has now been able to achieve that. But, yeah, I remember last year when I caught up with him we were talking uh, about you know, what what I'd done and those conversations he'd also had with other people who had worked with refugees and advocated for them. And he said, you know, Michelle, it, you know, there comes a point in this journey as an asylum seeker where you just don't know if you've got the strength to go on sometimes. Like it is really, really difficult. It becomes such a dark, dark time. And it's often those, he said, some of those conversations you had with me where you just were able to provide me with some hope where I was at this crossroad where I really didn't know if I could go on versus being told, you know, that like being hopeful, let's like look at what the the future holds, you know, what will be, will be, it will be okay. He said that was, you know, enough at at that time time to be reminded of his strength and his resilience and he said you'd have no idea how much those those what might seem like little conversations to you actually were the biggest like game changers for people like myself amazing and so I'd imagine holding space should be number one when it comes to interacting with someone who is escaping from their home what other skill sets do you feel have helped you in developing Mm. a deep connection with yeah, I would say. People would imagine trust is a huge issue, right? They probably don't trust anyone and they feel unsafe. Yeah, there's an element of trust. And as you rightly said, um, there's the aspect of holding space, being able to listen to people, being able for people to feel acknowledged through this process. I think, you know, we really forget that, um, that. You know, for us, I would say like sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, well, of course we're thinking about them. They must think we know we're thinking about them. But I think when people feel acknowledged and that they're they're able to share their story as much as they want, you know, I would never press people for information. Um, but I find people generally will want to share the story. Um you know, and that goes back to like an, an interesting case or a very sad case um, that my book starts with, which is around that boat crash that happened off Christmas Island, um, where there was over 40 people that drowned in the sea um, as the as the, the boat crashed against the the, the the rocks there on Christmas Island and, and islanders tried to help. Um, you know, they were mainly Iranian and Kurdish people that had had drowned in the sea. And I remember at that time, um, you know, those those survivors were still, incarcerated in immigration detention um, while this was being dealt with and they really wanted their story told and myself and um, a professor Linda Briskman her and I decided that we would actually document survivors testimonies and people said we really want our story to be shared which is interesting because it is a really traumatic 
you know, topic to be talking about. But I think for, for, for those people, it was actually felt like being able to um, put their story on record, for us to be able to bear witness to what had happened, um, to, to be able to listen to their stories actually can sometimes be very healing for people. Absolutely. And just to be seen for the first time, maybe ever in their whole life. Yeah, which is a basic human need, as we know, is to be seen and to be heard. Yeah. And I think that's the problem with, you know, immigration detention, where it's it's really, you know, security, maximum security prisons, this type of thing, CCTV. You know, this is this is really intimidating to people and people feel like they are, you know, out of sight, out of mind. Um, and you know, that's, and it's, it's, it, it's really difficult, you know, for the public to access these people as well. Um, so for me, it was always about bridging that gap on Christmas Island, um, being able to, you know, find ways to, to mediate that so people could actually feel like they, they were cared about. Yeah. And I'd imagine Dr. Demessi as one person, you want to help everyone, but as we know, unfortunately in this world, you need to reach out to resources and connections. And so how do you collaborate with other organizations or even other individuals who are in a position of power and influence to continue to amplify the voices? Yeah, I would say on that, there's a few different aspects. I would say as someone, um, I'm not only as a refugee advocate, I would say, you know, someone as a migration expert, um, someone that's done a PhD on this topic, but has also had on the ground experience on places like Christmas Island, um, Afghanistan. Um, so I think there become with that comes a level of um, expertise that, you know, I should be able to use my skill set as as, a, as an expert, as an academic or whatnot, to actually be communicating that back to, say, immigration departments about cases. Um, I found that is where I look at it. Um, I'm not someone who is really vocal in terms of, um, you know, putting cases in the media. That's for some advocates, that's their pathway of doing things. And by no means there's there's a right way or wrong way. Everyone just has different styles of doing something. Um, For me, it's really always been about diplomacy. Um, How can we take a look at what's happening here to this individual that's in front of us or this family and looking at ways that we can mediate this issue um, in the best interest of that person who has a right to asylum. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Demesi, your background is philosophy, anthropology. And is there a personal connection to wanting to pursue that path from Um, childhood and your own family ancestors? Yeah, no. So the anthropology piece, I would say, look, I've always just been interested in, you know, the study of culture, of people. Um, And my area that I specialised in is ethnography. So ethnography involves being in the field, being completely immersed in that setting um, where you really get to know um, the people that you are researching and you almost become part of that um, you know, my case was part of that Christmas Island community. Um, so I think for me, I've always managed to build rapport with people very, very quickly. Um, I think that's a skill set and, you know, taking the time to to listen to people and 
build relationships and trust. I think that's really, really critical. From my own background, it's it's um it was not that I came from a family that was really socially active or anything like that. It was quite funny when I talked to my mother about it. I was active like from the age of 10. <laughs> you know, I was like trying to save whales and <laughs> getting people to sign petitions and knocking on neighbors' doors. And I really, I really don't know where that came from because it was not something that was really like instilled into me. Like my parents have, you know, incredible ethics and integrity, um, but it was just not something I, you know, it was just, I think I was called to this from a very, very young age. Um, And I think my mentality has always been, you know, everything can be solved. Everything, you know, we can always find a way through. I would say I'm always an optimist um, when it comes to, to these issues and, you know, as, as being joked uh, with other, you know, friends and colleagues with me, it's like where, you know, where others say no, I just hear yes. <laughs> I'm just like, it's a yes, we're going to sort this out. <laughs> yes, and that's a very important skill set, especially in the work that you do. Yeah, 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 no, I, I, I agree. You mentioned the connection between food and culture, which, of course, as a dietitian, we have to have that conversation. So absolutely. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> and a lot of the connections that I've made, a lot of the interviews on the podcast have been about just even cultural awareness around food. And in order to understand someone, you have to understand what do they eat? What do they like to eat? What are what is the backstory behind some of their practices around food and nutrition? Can you speak to us about that story's identity, your understanding of that connection between food and culture, what you've learned food and spirituality yeah well, well what a what a beautiful question I'd love to answer that one for you mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's it's still a new area of research for me I have always found that food connects us it seems to be quite a neutral um, you know denominator when it comes to these topics but it's something that can be shared and I would say like looking at you know from from my background um my my dad's family were Italian migrants they they migrated from the south of Italy um you know post-world war ii and if I was to consider in Australia for example you know through through those years like when my my dad was at school he was you know experienced a lot of like racism for being Italian you know at that time people were not so accepted and you look at like Italian food over time Italian food became like such a prominent aspect of Australian society people love Italian food and it's no different in many other countries and I think that becomes like the neutralizer um, when people can actually experience one another's um, food and that is always linked back to culture I think that's always a very very, as I said, neutral way of like shared experiences and being able to be introduced to something new. It's not political. I would say as well, um, I'm really interested at the moment around, um, you know, these concepts of roots and belonging. And I feel that a lot of that is connected um, back to to food um, as well. Um, so with that, you know, I see that um, when people move to a new country, they will always, um, you know, look for look for how they can recreate the food that they have um, made in their homelands. Um, you know, there's always like the smells, the senses, the everything that goes with it is very nostalgic for people. 
I was thinking just the exact same thing about when you feel homesick and a lot of people have said they miss like their mom's cooking or food that they grew up with and they look forward to reconnecting with that again. Exactly. I think that's um, that's that's definitely the case. Um, it's you know it's something that uh, people can really yeah really connect with. Um, Dr. Demesi, would you say over the years, in terms of policy and rules and support, things have gotten better when it comes to acceptance of refugees, or do you feel like the backlash and fear has cre- created an even greater barrier? Mm, I think it's, you know, sometimes it really comes back to good leadership in different countries. So where you see strong leadership that are pro-migration, um, pro, uh, you know, this type of thing, um, that, you know, you will get the, these better better responses. But when you can see that, um, you know, asylum seekers are being or refugees or the topic of migration is being used, you know, to win political votes, of course, you're going to get backlash on that. So, um, you know, this is, this is, uh, it's a, it's a major problem. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's, it's dependent on the country, really, and the leaders. Um, And things can change any moment, depending on who's elected. Yeah, exactly. Um, Are there sort of tips and strategies that have helped you influence policies and ensure implementation? In terms of tips and policy, I think um, I would say over time, look, for me, it's um, where there's been, say, inquiries into different um, issues or events that have happened. Um, for example, when there was an inquiry into the the boat crash that happened off Christmas Island, you know, I did um, appear before and that inquiry and put in a submission um, when there've been like investigations into um, into uh, detention and whatnot. Um, so yeah. Um, that would be definitely be one one aspect. Um, I think. Look, uh, it's it's um, it it really really depends. Um, you know, people are always shaping policy and making um, things come out in 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 the public domain. Um, but for me, it's just really been about you know how can I document what's happening and use my my voice. Mm-hmm. And hopefully people are picking up those stories and using Absolutely. that to change policy. Amazing. Um, speaking of stories, you probably have numerous success stories and encounters where you feel you felt your work was the most impactful. Um, what are those stories or what are those things that help you wake up every day and go, this is what I meant to be and this is where I meant to be, where I'm supposed to be and this is what's going to keep me going? Yeah, um, I'm just thinking the best way to to process that because it's always a journey um, when you're you're dedicated to this work. I think it's about knowing your thresholds and knowing your boundaries and knowing it's okay to step back. I think people often um, get uh, come into this this area of work and there's definitely signs of um, severe burnout. People get really burned out um, with, with, you know, dealing with such a, um, you know, complex topic and, you know, bearing witness to people's suffering on a regular basis. Um, 
So for me, it's always been knowing when to take a step back. I think um, that's always looked at like, yeah, I would say for me, it's been when I've not been able to offer hope anymore. And I've always been driven by hope. Like that's probably the currency that I operate on. Um, And if I know that I am not able to do that, or it's, I'm just like, okay, I need to to take a step back. Um, I've always been, you know, really motivated around like getting professional counselling, debriefing, um, times, you know, while I was on Christmas Island, when I've come back from, say, Afghanistan, I've been very committed to that. And I think, you know, you have to talk about you know, what you've witnessed in a professional space. Uh, you can't carry that around all the time. And by owning that and having those um, discussions with, with someone who's qualified to, to, to work with you on this, gives you more energy and strength to keep doing this type of work. Yeah, it sounds like there has to be honesty with yourself. Otherwise, if you can't be, then this is where things can go in a very different direction. Yeah, I think so. And that's a really important point. It is about being honest with yourself. And, you know, as we always say, like, you know, if you can't look after yourself, like you're of no help to other people. And, And also valuing like it's okay to take time out it's okay to enjoy things um you know I sometimes think people just think oh I just need to be a total martyr to this whole situation you know I have very good friends I have very good communities social support um family support in terms of you know just being able to enjoy life and come back to things that I really um love doing sometimes you know some of my best best moves have been spending a day in bed yeah (laughs) doing nothing and then like you know absolutely doing nothing and just chilling in bed for the day and hanging out and people like what you would do that I'm like yeah I'm like you can make big power moves (laughs) when Mm. you do this and you can actually make a greater move the next time once you've absolutely yeah yeah for sure for sure and so for people who are feeling inspired motivated they want to get involved with being a voice for refugees making a positive difference in their lives what are ways that they can help both small and big? Yeah, so there are quite a number of different ways in which people can get involved with the topic of refugees. I find that in most Western countries, there are some sort of you know, NGO or charity that is offering uh, some sort of uh, programs or support or volunteer programs to, to refugees or asylum seekers. Um, so, you know, first, let's. I would say to people, have a, have a search about what's happening in your community. Um, it might be, like I said, a charity. It may be related to, um, you know, if, you, if you've got a religious affiliation, it could be like through programs with different, you know, churches or mosques or whatnot are running. Um, so definitely you can look at, at that angle. And I think it always has to be... Um, what resonates with you so you know go check those organizations out if it's a you know a big yes I really like the work they're doing and I want to contribute um then then go for it if it's something where you're just like "Mm, I don't know if this is really my thing well that's okay something else will come along um so that's probably one aspect then I would say um you know, I, I, like we were saying about food, I, I love the aspect of, of experiencing food from refugee migrant communities. A lot of the time, the people who actually own those restaurants will be connected to 
to people back in their original homelands in some shape or form. They may be, you know, cousins of, of them or whatnot, and they're sending money back to, say, Afghanistan, for example, or um, they may be just more involved with supporting a community back in their, their homelands. So I think that's a really great way to, to experience and, and support. And it's, you know, it doesn't take much time. We all love to eat and we all like to try new food. Yes, and especially with children, I say, just get them out there, you know, the world travelers, trying different, just even trying different cuisines, going to different communities and areas. So they're not looking at the other, but everyone is just one. We're all one part of humanity. Yeah, and that's a really nice way of putting it. Um, Dr. DeMessi, your work is undoubtedly valuable, very fulfilling, but extremely heavy. What are your non-negotiables, words you live by, daily practices that keep you healthy mentally and physically? I would say I've been a meditator for about eight years. Um, so, and I'm not like talking heavy into like, you know, 30, 40, one hour minutes <laughs> meditation. Honestly, who really has time for that? <laughs> I, I so Let's true. Be- Clear. But what is achievable is 10 minutes. Uh, So most days of the week, I would definitely try to meditate um, just for 10 minutes when I get up and and settle myself that way. Just, you know, connect with myself, connect with, you know, what, what I also say, like God, spirit, universe. I find that just helps me settle in for the day. So that's um, really, really important for me. Um, Also, I would say, as we were saying before, like, you know, when it just gets too much and I know my threshold to take a step back, um, I think that's really, really, really important. Look, I'm really big into health and fitness and wellness. You know, I've been doing CrossFit for for some years. Um, You know, I always say to myself, go walk it out. If something doesn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sort of trying to move through something, I'll definitely go for an hour walk. Um, I'm getting better as well as not even listening to something while I'm walking, taking my, you know, AirPods out and actually just being present and listening to what's going around me. I have just started doing that a lot more lately. And I was like, okay, this is quite meditative in its own right um so yeah so those would be things for me I you know myself I'm also really big into nutrition um actually on the side had studied integrative nutrition as well um so for me you know cooking is is good therapy for me I'm just like okay I can just zone out and cook and create things and invite friends over for for meals yeah so there's some of the things I, I love doing and also just you know, where I can, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate that I can take holidays um, now and then. I, I, I live in the in Dubai. I'm in the Middle East. It's, you know, only a couple of hours to other really interesting places in the region and five, six hours to places like Italy. So, you know, I'm really blessed in that respect that I, can, that, that I have the, um, you know, I'm privileged enough to be able to do that. Love it. And in regards to cooking, it sounds like we have our next episode or Instagram live. <laughs> I think that would be cool. <laughs> you know, you might be making breakfast and I'm making dinner, but yeah, yeah, with these we, times, totally, yeah. we will find a way to make it work. Um, <laughs> Dr. Demesi, where can our listeners find out more about you? 
Mm, yeah, so just the usual. Um, my Instagram, I'm pretty active on there. I'm always covering off, um, you know, different places that I'm visiting, um, what's happening in the refugee space. So that's Michelle DeMassey is my Instagram handle. Um, my website as well, which is Michelle Jasmine DeMassey. Um, you can have a look there at, at what I'm doing. I'll be a bit more active on that um, going forward. I'm spending this summer in, in Sicily doing a lot more creating and writing. Um so there'll be a lot more happening in, in in that arena as well. Amazing. And you're also posting upcoming events. I know you have one coming up next week about empowering refugees through employment. So if anyone's interested, those are all the ways to yeah, stay connected yeah. to the topic. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm always putting, um, you know, if I've been doing podcasts or speaking events, um, that will that will always be there on, on my Instagram. Amazing. Um, Dr. Demesi, it's been the greatest honor to have you here. I mean, you have taken the other and just changed the narrative to we are all one. Um, It really truly takes a very unique person to do that. And thank you so much for the most important work that you do. Thank you. It's been an absolute honor to be on your program. And I have really enjoyed this conversation with you today. Thank you. And I will have you back. So I'm stating that right here on the podcast. (laughs) I would love to. Thank you so much and happy Friday to you and talk to you soon. And to the listeners, thank you as always for tuning in. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast with your host, Argavan Neoforush. We hope you enjoyed our deep dive into all the tips and tricks you and your family can use to make daily life a little easier. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, share with others, and follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Baby Steps Nutrition Podcast. As always, you can head over to babystepsnutrition.com to sign up for our email list, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. See you next time. Tune in. Feel great.